You're listening to the Retail Perch with Shaker Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey, folks! Welcome back to another episode of the Retail Perch, and uh, you know this is we're coming into the second or the third 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 of the year right so this is we're coming into september here we're coming to fall i can't believe it it's been 18 months since we kind of locked down and hunkered down here but uh we've been having a good time with the retail perch and uh, we appreciate all the interest that you guys have shown uh in the show and you know as you guys know we discuss retail technology and emerging trends in this field but today we are doing something really exciting and i think it's a uh, it's going to be a, a fresh uh, perspective on things, and I can't wait to hear from our amazing guest who is here from a university. I think uh, this is our first guest from a university, right, Gary? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. so it's uh, interesting to hear the academic perspective and what's coming out of colleges. But uh, Gary, I'll leave it to you to introduce our amazing guest here. All right, perfect. Thank you, Shaker. Uh, yeah, so as, as some of our listeners may know, uh, I have been going into uh, Georgetown University typically each semester for the last, gosh, what, five, six, seven years probably, and uh, guest lecturing in uh, some of the marketing classes, uh, both undergrad students, grad students, and so on. And uh, Kardik, who is our guest today, is an associate professor at Georgetown in the uh, business school. Glad he can be here with us in person today. Uh, so Kardik, if you would, why don't you take a few minutes to sort of introduce yourself, your background, you know, and talk a little about Georgetown, some of the courses there. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. For once, I'm uh, joining you in your face, Gary, so I appreciate that. And, you know, we, I, I, uh, we had a long, I think, history. I think it's been eight years that you've been speaking wow. in classes with me across MBA, uh, undergrad, and other programs. So it's great to be here with you guys and uh, be the first, I guess, academic to join uh, this podcast. So hopefully I'll uh, make it worth inviting a few more on. I'll tell you guys a little bit about myself. Uh, as Gary said, I'm an associate professor at Georgetown in the marketing area. And to give a, a little background to that, I actually started my uh, undergrad thinking I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, and I went to the engineering school at Columbia. While I was there, I found out in about the first two years or so that I didn't have any interest in how bridges stood up, how cars worked, how computer worked. And I started looking around the engineering school and um, was unsure what I wanted to do within that, you know, field. Luckily, I think I ended up taking a few classes in the business school and a few in psychology. And those really sparked my interest because I found out I was interested in how business works and how the mind works. And that took me through a path to end up here where I said, hey, I'm interested in marketing because that's the interface of the mind and business of the consumer's mind and the business that's uh, interacting with the consumer. So I, I did a few different jobs in industry, consulting, advertising, a little bit in risk management at one point, uh, but then transitioned into pursuing academia where I went and got a master's at Wharton and then did a PhD in marketing at the Ohio State University. Got to have the D there for all the big 10 folks. And then I've had the pleasure uh, and the privilege to work at McDonough School of Business here at Georgetown for uh, starting my ninth year. Um, and in that time, I've you know 
had the chance to teach in the MBA program with the executive MBAs, uh, some master's programs and the undergrads. Uh, I teach courses that are the principles or the core marketing class. Uh, I teach consumer psychology course, which is closer to some of the research uh, and training that I have uh, as a researcher for my PhD. Uh, and then we have a great course called Global Business Education, GBE Experience, excuse me, GBE, where we uh, take students to international locations to work on consulting projects with companies in those cities and countries. And so they get a, an opportunity to work on real projects, but also understand different cultures and working, learn about different businesses and economies uh, all across the world. Um, unfortunately, we haven't been able to go last year, but I'm hoping we'll be able to go again. And I've taken students to uh, Vietnam and uh, to India, to Bangalore uh, in that. So those are some of the courses I've taught um, and some of the experiences I've had at Georgetown that you know have made me really happy to have spent the better part of the last decade of my career here. Neat. Well, thanks for being with us today. And I think, you know, we can really get into some interesting topics here because uh, Shaker, you know, as, as you called out, we haven't had a guest yet from sort of the university or the educational system, right, on here. And yet that is so important to, to what we do, to what retail does and so on. So to maybe kick us off here, uh, Carter, you know, each class I do with you, you know, it, it revolves around marketing, but we touch on all the different technology that's impacting retail, certainly uh, tech that's impacting um, marketing. And uh, as you know, I talk a lot about this exponential growth of, of tech and innovation and, you know, how fast the world is moving and it's going to move even faster. Do you, do you think your students really appreciate the growing pace of this tech field change? Do they express concern about it? Are they excited by it? You know, do they, do you think they have a real sense of what awaits them as soon as they step outside the classroom into their uh, uh, careers? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think it's one, as you said, you talk about this idea in class every time you're there. Um, and I think it's one that sparks that thought for them. And you know, I have a, a, a few different aspects of that that I think are important to think about. One, first of all, and this is something you talk about, Gary, is I don't think any of us are good at comprehending exponential change. And I would say that's true for the students themselves. They understand the pace of change is fast, but how fast is something I think none of us really appreciate. You know, we look back at yesterday and say, what was yesterday, where's today? And we sort of linearly translate that forward. We struggle to exponentiate that forward. And I think that's true for everyone. Honestly, I think that might be a little bit more true for faculty and um, programs than even the students to some extent. We are not necessarily always uh, as agile and quick as an individual student and in learning and changing and adjusting. So I think that's been a real challenge within academia, which is trying to keep pace as the pace of business and the rate of change has gotten so much faster. How do we keep up? And that's a discussion I think business schools, certainly Georgetown and even instructors have. With that being said, I think students, you know, come in a little bit more ready for that speed and ready to sort of go out there and do things. And I would say, to an extent, sometimes it's to the detriment 
uh, that they are so excited and caught up in the speed and the rate of change and all the cool new things that are coming out. Because I think what sometimes is lost is that some of the core business skills, the things mm -hmm. that you learn in an MBA or even an undergraduate program still are relevant, no matter how fast things are cha changing. Knowing how to solve a business problem, identify the root of a problem, think critically about the steps to a solution, be ready to sort of adjust, but have a strategy as to how you're adjusting or changing when you see new things come about. That type of thinking and business problem solving was true you know, and necessary and relevant 40 years ago, 20 years ago today. And you know, I think it'll still be relevant. So sometimes they're so eager and excited to get into the new tech and say, hey, there's this cool new thing. There's this other cool new thing. Uh, they forget that, you know, a case from five years ago that has a key lesson in it is still relevant. Even if the platforms change from Facebook to Instagram to TikTok to wherever else we may be going to send our marketing message out. So I think what you're saying here, Karthik, is the consumer doesn't change. Technologies change. Consumer stays the same. So understanding consumer behavior, what motivates them, how they make decisions fundamentally doesn't change. The means of accessing businesses changes. It's, that's actually a really good point. I think technology is exponentially changing. Humans are changing at the rate of evolution, right, which is much slower. Uh, so we certainly are learning new platforms and, you know, attention spans are changing and trends in terms of consumers' desire for social interest within their firms, understanding the, polit the, the political or the value um, that the a firm has, caring about sustainability. Those are changes that are occurring and we need to recognize consumers' change, but I don't think they're changing at the speed or their decision processes and their preferences aren't changing at the speed that platforms are changing or apps are updating, which is, you know, if I look at my phone, almost weekly, I see the same app being updated with the next version. Um, so I think that's a really nice way to put that shaker. Yeah, and I think also, you know, there's so many more micro events happening in our life, right? Than maybe used to happen 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, and it seems like there's more micro events that are trying to capture our attention, right? And and I guess that's where technology comes in, is the ability for us to introduce more micro events into somebody's life and understanding how people respond to it and react to it. And, and I guess, would you say that somebody who has a better understanding of how to orchestrate these micro events is an advantage over somebody who doesn't? Yeah, great question. And if I would add to something before that, uh, that maybe leads into my answer, which is, you know, the technology is, in, is allowing us to create micro events, but we're also seeing technology being used to block out micro events. And I think that highlights that what's important is not the ability to pop in quickly at any point, but it's to pop in quickly at the right time and at the right place. And I think this is something, Gary, you also talk about in class where people are concerned about sharing data, but if you can offer value for that data, they're willing to you know, have a discussion or make that trade. And so I think there is a power in being able to insert yourself, but it's more important to be able to create the right micro event or put it in the right place than just to have the ability to put one in front of someone. 
So, you know, sometimes I get on here a notification from Twitter and I just wipe it right. So you didn't time it right. But sometimes you give me the right thing at the right place and I click on it. And if you can figure out those two things together, I think that's when you can really, you know, harness the power of the technology by putting it into the right time and place for the consumer. No, that's a great point to bring up because Gary and I talk about this a lot, which is it's more than communications, meaningful, relevant communications, yes. right? And that piques uh, somebody's interest. And that really takes understanding, you know, whether if you're a business, you're a consumer, right? Understanding uh, what's their primary objective, why do they come to you and, and what, are they, what are they looking for? So that's fantastic. So, I mean, so continuing on that and the theme of uh, how students are perceiving this uh, whole thing, what's their take on, you know, obviously with all these platforms, TikTok and Instagram, you know, people are pretty much advertising their, their lives out there. And what is their, what is the prevailing sentiment around big data and privacy? Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's two sides to that coin again. Um, one is, I think people are uh, in business schools are excited. The students are excited by the idea of big data, the idea of having this data to sort of explore and draw insight from. And uh, they, they're really open. A, a large segment of students are really excited and open to the idea of that's what I want to do is dive into data, draw out insights that are relevant and important. I think that's one side of things. And that's sort of if they're putting on their career hat and their business person hat. On the other side of things, you when you see the, stu the students put on more of their consumer hat, I think you see that concern. Uh, because where does big data come from? It's coming from us, providing those data points every moment. Every one of those micro moments we were yeah. talking about is a data point. And so I think there is a concern there when we say, wow, we're putting a lot out there where is it going? How is it regulated? And so there's sort of this almost dueling excitement and concern about big data. And I'd say that's probably true for a lot of people where, you know, I think it's this really amazing way that we could potentially create more value for consumers. Again, by putting the right things in front of them in the right places, learning what they need, figuring out the right cadence to message them. But it also can be a little bit unnerving to think about how much they know. If they know about your pulse and your exercise here, if they can connect it, uh, as a Gary, an example you have, to what you purchase in the grocery store and connect that to health insurance. That's them knowing a lot about the different parts of my life that you know are connected to my health, but don't feel like someone should know each of all of those uh, together. So. I think that's a real sort of dichotomy or duality in the way that they feel about big data as a as an area of study and career growth versus as a consumer contributing to the data set. It seems like almost every class I do with you, inevitably that discussion comes up somewhere in the course of that, right? That you know, we get talking about big data and how it's used and connecting things that were previously, you know, disparate. It, you know, the students really taking interest in that and, and seems like many times expressing some concern uh, around where's all this going. Uh, did, do you see that coming up throughout the, the semester of the year and other classes you're teaching? Yeah, I think you, you see it in a, a lot of different places. You know, obviously it's heightened when we get into talking about business technology uh, 
or retail tech and shopper marketing and the things that you talk about, Gary, when you come to class. But you see it in a, even, even a, in a very marketing strategy setting of like segmenting and targeting consumers, where a lot of how we segment and target, you know, now can come out of data in ways that might be a little bit concerning. And I wouldn't even say in this sense, when we talk about segmentation and targeting, it's not even the data privacy that I think sometimes is a conversation point or a concern point. That's absolutely a piece of it. How much data must there be under, you know, the sort of segmentation that's possible to be created by financial institutions or even the giant or Safeway around the corner. Uh, but the other piece is what happens once you've segmented that way is that is it discriminatory is it not where is the line when you get to being able to segment in this way that can be so refined based on data where's the line as to what falls as just good marketing and what falls into something a little past maybe some a lot of people's ethical line into discrimination or something credit something predatory that's quite fascinating so I mean, this reminds me of the Truman Show movie, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, obviously people in the set are enjoying that side of the equation and the people right. behind are excited, you know, and I can, I can see, you know, the trepidation that people may have and the nervousness while, while we all enjoy the access to data to do the many things that we want to do in our life we're concerned about other people having access to the same exactly. same data to influence us right so so going on from there so what, what is the um when you guys are uh, obviously in school teaching these uh, these kids to get these degrees and develop these, some of these skill sets what is your thinking you know how, how do you want people to think about data when coming out of college you know and going into industry and what's your you know general prime directive here? Yeah, great. Another really good question. And um, I would say the, the, the main lesson I try to impart, whether it's undergraduates in the consumer behavior course doing you know, consumer research, whether we're talking about transactional data in a core marketing class, sales forecasting, whatever the data may be, I try to keep reminding students that data isn't answers. Data is our inputs to decision-making processes. And I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the, the curse of the calculator where if you punch in numbers and you get an answer, you just accept the answer rather than sort of sanity check it. And I try to take that into the idea of what comes out of a analysis, whether it's big data, consumer data, experimental data, Let's run the analysis, but then let's stop and say, well, what does this mean? Does it make sense? And then what should we do with it? And we, should we blindly follow the data? Probably not. Let's blend it with some of what we know, our own experience and expertise, some other data that might be not perfectly coherent, uh, as well as some critical thought uh, as to what all goes together. So, you know, for me in the courses that I teach, we don't deal so much with the data analysis, but try to talk a lot more about, okay, the analysis has been conducted. What do we do with that output? And that's the part that um, I focus on a lot, just given the courses that I teach uh, with my students. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really enjoy, you know, in the classes I do with you, especially uh, like the MBA students, 
is really encouraging them to think about some of these issues that are you know, becoming so important, especially as they move out into the business world, you know, after they leave Georgetown. But, you know, things like with all the automation that's happening, both physical automation, business process automation, et cetera, you know, what's going to happen to people, right? If, if I don't need cashiers anymore in the store, or I don't need a team of marketing people to build a campaign because the computer can do it, what happens to all those people? Or, or other things, and this is one, again, inevitably comes up, thinking about sort of the world of healthcare and the world of food and so on, as they converge and connect, you know, where, where's that thin line between incentivizing good eating behavior or crossing that line and actually penalizing right. behavior, right? Like, hey, you ate too many potato chips last week, your health insurance premium is going to go up $25. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, um, I, I think that's a really important thing. And, you know, it comes back to this pretty comp, like a, a very consumer psych idea of framing, right? Is this a penalty or is this an incentive and, you know, a discount? And what's interesting um, is you can see that the same thing, if you frame it as, hey, if you don't eat those chips, I'll give you back 25 bucks. A lot of people would be more receptive to that kind of, I think, a policy uh, approach if we, we got to a place where what you consumed was impacting your um, health insurance, as opposed to if we say, if you eat those chips 25 bucks, I think everyone would, you know, understandably have uh, outrage at that. So it makes it feel better, but I don't know if that makes it better because it's the same thing. You're still moving a dollar figure based on what I consume. And that sort of a discussion that ideally should happen outside of those two frames. Is it gains or is it losses? Is it penalties or rewards for good and bad behavior? You know, we, I think we could, and this is the marketer side of things, we can position it or frame it in a way that makes it more appealing. But before we even do that, I think we should have the conversation at some level, at governmental level, uh, some sort of level that says, should we be doing this? Yeah. And then let's figure out if we think the answer is, yeah, this is good for everyone. It's not too intrusive, but the, the benefits to society are better than the costs to the individual in society. Then let's figure out the right, right way to explain and uh, present it. But I'm not sure if we're having enough of those conversations at the top, which think, is this the right thing to do? I think a lot of people are saying, well, we're doing it. So let's figure out, you know, how to make people okay with it. Yeah, yeah. So Shaker, that, that just made me think, you know, the, this opens up door to a whole new world of personalized pricing, right? Yeah, so yeah. that dollar bag of potato chips is 75 cents for the people that want to treat once in a while, or it's now $2 to the people that shouldn't yeah. be eating them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, that's the next question that I had here, Rakartik, which was, around you know we talk about you know ai and ml is all the buzzwords nowadays right but you can see that a lot of these technologies are making its way into uh, fields which used to be very heavily human driven you know as in there were people behind it right but technologies are now getting to the point where they can maybe make some of these inferences and decisions on the fly how do you see that affecting skill sets and degrees that people get in college? Like, yeah. It's a great question. I, I, so I, I went to um, 
a couple of conferences where we talked about sort of business education across a number of business schools uh, in the country. I think there was a few international business schools as well. And these were conversations that, you know, academics and instructors and faculty are having as well. And what was interesting is we got some uh, research that, that these the people who run this association uh, had done with industry. And surprisingly, soft skills were something that were moving up in sort of importance, even though things like data and quantitative analysis are becoming more of what you might be doing with your day. It was the soft skills that they were starting to value more. And I think it might be because those stand the test of time. If you have those soft skills, if you're a good leader, if you're a good motivator, if you're a good coworker and a team member, all of those things are going to be useful, you know, no matter what kind of a task you're doing, whether it's something that was pen and paper on a calculator, or now just using the output of an AI. Those are, uh, I think, very important. And I think a little bit counterintuitively, something that's become more important uh, in industry and something that I think I've tried to take that lesson and say, these are things that we can bring back into the classroom. That being said, I also think number fluency uh, and quantitative fluency is really helpful and important. So you don't necessarily have to be the one who's able to cut and slice and wield the data, but you have to be able to communicate with them and understand some of that because everyone's interacting with it, at least on, you know, maybe not in the data set or in the database, but at least with the outputs that come from it. So you have to have a comfortability with having conversations with where the data came from, how it got here, what it means, how to uh, make inference from it. So that's a little bit of the quantitative piece there. I think fluency has become more important, but those soft skills are something that are standing the test of you know, exponential change, I guess. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. I, I agree at first thought, it may not seem intuitive, but you yeah. know, as you were talking about it, it, it makes sense. But Shaker, you know, I know you see, I certainly see cases across retail where you know retailers in particular have need of, of people now with entirely new skill sets than they needed even a few years ago, right? As as things are advancing so quickly. Uh, so it's it's interesting how the, the educational system and universities try to maintain that alignment with what business needs, you know, are coming out of that? On some level, I think um, I would say, and I don't know how much of this is just the reality of the fracturing of the skill sets and the number of businesses out there and the speed of turnover of uh, employees moving job to job. I think millennials stay in a job, something like 15 months on average, uh, which you know, I think is probably very different from 30, 40 years ago, where it was normal to work for 40 years in one company. But what I what I feel is maybe a small failure on our part in academia is that I I think there's a larger trend towards the companies in-housing some of their training. And they say, hey, I want some, I, I'm hiring to just see who I think has the capability to succeed at the company. And then I'll train them on the things that they need to do. So if those skill sets are changing one, two, three years, and 
we need new skills, I'll train the new people in what they need today, or I'll retrain and upskill and uh, the people who you know are already working here. But I'm not looking for the school to have them abreast of all the latest technology. And you know, on some level, I think that might be a place where academia could improve. But it really comes back to a, a question again, maybe a philosophical one as to what is our purpose? Is it to is it more of a trade school where you learn the craft of being a marketer or the craft of being an accountant or uh, a eye banker or whatever it may be? Or is it that you learn how to think like a business person and solve problems at a more sort of overarching critical thinking level and just enhance that ability to diagnose and solve and frame problems and be creative? And if you say the second half is what we are mandated at the universities to do, I think we're doing a great job. If it's to train them on how to create camp ad campaigns on Instagram that can go viral, I don't think we're doing as good a job at that. Uh, but that's, or, you know, that's where I'm sure if you work for a firm, you'd have some, some people helping you and teaching you the ropes of this is what works if you're in charge of our social media. No, that's, that's fascinating that you say that because, uh, you know, in some sense, you know, the, the students coming out of college today are going to be the technologists of the future, right? They're going to be the ones that set up companies. They're going to be the ones that uh, define how things move forward. And I'm just wondering, and I have, uh, you know, I have two kids and one of them just went into, the younger one went into college. Mm -hmm. And uh, and she's always, she seems to be the opposite of what I expected, which is she wants less technology in her life. She wants more face-to-face -face time. She wants more human interaction. And she is, in some sense, favors face-to-face -face conversations over any technology. And I'm finding that that's not, she's just, she's not the exception. There's, there's yeah. a lot of kids in that age who actually prefer that interaction. So it seems like we go through these waves where you have these spurts of technological innovation, and then you have a generation that's been so inundated with technology that they're kind of shying away from it. And you have this lull in the process. Yeah. So I'm wondering if it's, it's, it's more like in, in sort of a exponentially growing wave, it's kind of like a, you know, an Elliot's wave type of thing, right? Whereas it's, it's two steps forward, one step back type of thing. And it's, it's, it's a wave that we have to kind of be aware of because you know Gary and I when we when we work in the retail industry and we are able to now bring solutions that are able to largely automate marketing right yeah. uh, what to typically take a you know a bunch of people together to figure out we're able to do that in a few minutes uh, or a couple of hours on through some algorithms I wonder, you know, what that what that does to people who are coming out of college and looking to get a marketing degree and saying, okay, how do I find value in this enterprise, right? And to your point, I, mean, I think soft skills obviously are really important uh, because I think that's one thing that people people crave. But I, I'm trying to think maybe there is obviously you guys have industry relations. That's why you bring in people like Gary to kind of keep your class in touch with what's going on out there in, in the exactly. world, right? But how do you, as an institution, do you have the ability to steer this whole thing? I mean, because, you know, essentially the people that are coming out of college are the ones that are going to make up the real world, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to believe we do in that. Otherwise, if we are not shaping or helping these, these future business people and business leaders shape, you know, their goals, the culture that they want to inculcate in the business world, then, you know, I, I think 
that's a big part of what we should be doing, not just imparting, you know, frameworks and knowledge as right. well. So I'd like to believe we do. Um, and I do think there there's at some level, it, it, we absolutely do as a larger sort of academia and even in a micro setting with our students. I don't know that that larger institutional level, uh, if you go across the country or across the world, is as coordinated as maybe it could be. Uh, and maybe that's impossible if you're talking about, you know, hundreds of business schools uh, across the country and across the world. How, how are we all going to think the same thing and agree? Probably not in terms of where and how we should, um, you know, train our students. But, you know, for us at Georgetown, I think there's a few things that we've really co you know, sort of coalesced around when we say, we want to give you, regardless of where you go as a business function or what industry or sector you go into, we want you to become what we call a principled leader, which is someone who in every decision and every thought and every business you start, every campaign you might launch, anything you're doing, that you think about the ethical impact of that. And uh, you try to do things that are, you know, common phrase, but with the triple bottom line, right, is good for the firm, certainly, but good for your consumer and good for other stakeholders in that surrounding community. And if we can find those places to sort of deploy the skill sets that the students have that create those three wins, win, win, win for everyone, I, I, I hope at the end of our, you know, whether it's two years or four years as an undergrad, um, I hope that that's something that they take with them. And I know, if not every, the largest percentage of courses brush up against this a few points. And then we have a couple of courses that are really just about business ethics that really spend a whole semester or a whole uh, course getting them to think about these things so that hopefully that influences them wherever they go into their uh, another business starting their own, they're coming with sort of, not necessarily our view on ethics, but a principled approach based on their own ethics. Yeah. So, so coming at you uh, as a consumer and, and somebody who's an expert in, you know, in, in top marketing, if you were to, uh, let's say you had the voice to reach out to your supermarket retailer. What yeah. would you, what's the couple of things that you'd say, please change? What would that? That's a great question. I was just, I was just, uh, so the, the closest store to me is a Safeway. And I was just in their app, clicking around, trying to look at their weekly ad. And uh, they've got this whole targeted, like set of discounts. And what, the, the one thing I was just thinking um, as I was trying to make a shopping list was, this is too complex for me. I'm trying to click through what's in your weekly ad. Plus you've got these coupons in the app that I can scroll through and then somehow merge those two and create a shopping list for myself so that I can carry that to the store. Now I'm very much, you know, I, I think I'm a, I'm a consumer who responds to incentive. So if you tell me it's a buck off of this or that, I'm going to go, okay, I'll buy it this week instead of next week. Or yeah, sure. I'll, you know, buy the 16 ounce version instead of eight ounce version. Cause once you give me a dollar off, I'm getting a better, you know, at a scale or unit price. Uh, so some people may not feel that, but I think there there's a situation there where some of that could be simplified. The other, you know, the other piece for me, and maybe this is 
where, I mean, I think this is where some of what retail is going. And I know Amazon is opening or has opened one of these grocery stores up for us, but there's so much friction on the fringes of getting our products and our groceries. I'm not one who likes grocery delivery. I like to go, I like to walk aisles and it's not even just the produce. I just like to go in the cereal aisle. I know I'm going to buy probably the same thing, but I like to see what's out there. For me, it's a little bit of still a positive experience, but then it's all those fringe things where it comes to now all of a sudden the line to get out of there is long. That's not a fun part of me. Walking the aisles is interesting. All of a sudden, you know, the parking and I live in DC. So the parking situation is a bit of a mess um, because there's construction right in front of where you enter the garage. And those are the things that if we could make those pieces more frictionless, like Amazon, I think is trying to do. I would love to go into the shopping environment and continue to shop. I don't want everything delivered. But I sometimes opt for delivery because of those startup and ending costs to the you know shopping experience. Right. So you're thinking about the the time, the aggravation, the friction that you have, and you'd rather pay the 10 bucks for delivery sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. But I would I would like to walk into the store and pick cinnamon toast crunch and pick Skippy peanut butter. Forget pick my steak and pick my apple. But I would like to do those things and walk right back out. Uh, within you know 30 seconds yeah that's fascinating i mean we we should probably do this segment every every episode gary where we ask our guests this to, <laughs> what would you like your supermarket to do better <laughs> no it, it, it's a good idea it's yeah, a good yeah. idea <laughs> i love that I, I think i think you know because at the end of the day like you said it's, it's about understanding customer needs meeting them exactly where they want how to remove friction and, and you're right, you know, I think a lot of people over-engineer solutions uh, for people and they overthink the problem, you know, or somebody just wants, you know, what if somebody could give you, hey, here's what you think you need in your shopping list, just remove whatever you don't want. And here's some coupons for stuff that, and you have a pre-built list and all you're doing yeah. is selecting from it and simplifying the process. And I, I completely agree. So I have a lot, I have one more question, Gary, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll kind of wrap, wrap this up here, which is around preparing people for new careers, right? Yeah. Uh, when you, when you're trying to prepare people for new careers and we've noticed this in the, you know, the last 10 years, uh, 2007, eight is about the time that uh, AWS and the app store kind of came into being. And it seems like they've been here for eternity now, right? And, and people who grew up in the era before cloud uh, are suddenly faced with, oh my God, this is a completely different. And so we see that the pace of change that we started this whole discussion with has obviously doubled, if not tripled. And you talk about focusing your education more on soft skills and teaching people basic problem-solving capability, which is independent of technology and all that stuff. So how should, you know, like a company who's hiring, right? People coming out of college, what should they be looking for in people as opposed to skill sets? What should they be, you know, what should they be looking for saying, hey, this is a candidate that I think if I can take them in, they've got the right soft skills, they can pick up anything and keep up with the pace. Yeah, yeah, you know, um... I have two, two traits that you know, I look for if I'm trying to find someone who might be interested in doing research with me or I'm in TAs for courses. And I, I think it's grit and resilience. Those are the two. 
Um, the ability when you face a hard problem to just keep grinding. And then the ability to say, wow, I failed at that. I'm going to pick myself back up and I'm going to adjust, learn and improve and just keep pushing. Not necessarily against the same stone wall, but keep going somewhere, which is productive. And I think those are two traits that wherever you go in business, outside of business, if I could hire a bunch of people who were gritty and resilient, I know they'll do the work. I know they'll put in the effort and I know when they hit something hard, they'll bounce back up and keep going. I'll teach them anything they, you know, they want to learn and anything I think they need to learn. And uh, I can just speak as a, as an educator, when I see students who show the grit and resilience, it makes me lean in so much more uh, because I'm like, look, they're, they're doing this for themselves. They're working hard. They're putting their best effort in it. I want to get you past that obstacle or get you to the place where you're trying to go. And so, you know, if I could identify those two traits, uh, that's what I would hire on. If I well, was, that's a great point. And maybe yeah. for a lot of retailers listening out there, that comes as a welcome relief because, you know, we talk about the lack of talent available to retailers, especially supermarket retailers in the field of AI, machine learning. Why would somebody yeah. with a degree in AI want to go work for a grocery store, right? And, and but I guess that's, I know from what you're saying, that's not so much of a worry. If you hire the people who have some of those traits, they'll pick it up if, they, if they've got the motivation and they've got the drive to do something like that, which I think is, you know, if I was a retailer listening to this, it's a huge relief for me that, hey, this is a skill I can teach my people if I've got the right goals in front of me, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back to what I was saying about a lot of companies in-housing some training. So if you have your own training already set up where you're, you know, coaching people up on the, the skills they need or the, the platforms they need to use, the, the analytic tools they need to use, then I definitely would try to hire for those two traits because then my, you know, six week onboarding or my two year rotational training program, whatever it may be, gives them the skills. I just need to you know, hire for the person who's willing to grind through those two years or six weeks. And if they find something hard, you know, stay up the extra hour or two at night, figure it out and come back the next day, either with an answer or with thoughtful questions to get them you know, over the hump. Yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think this has been a great conversation. And I think Shaker that you know, a lot of retailers or people in the retail industry listening to this, it's given them some different things to think about, different perspectives on business in general and, uh, you know, this whole space. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think the, the takeaway for me is obviously you got to focus on the things that don't change, right? Uh, yeah. Focus on the things that don't change and get really good at dealing with those. Then, you know, the things that do change is always ways to pick up on that and learn and you know because that's the very by very nature because the things that do change it should be easy to pick up right <laughs> so and i think you know most of, obviously you know retail gary you know uh, especially supermarket retail is probably the grittiest of all the industries right because you yeah, have people who, companies that have been there for 50 100 years and uh, you don't hear too many companies lasting 1500 years so clearly this industry's got grit which is why you and i love it 
And, yeah. you know, so hopefully out there, you guys got some major points from this, at least things to think about. And it was terrific talking to Karthik. It was a fresh perspective. And Karthik, thank you so much for being on the show. And by the way, I got to say this, and we say this to all our guests, but next time, uh, if you give us your address, your mailing address, we'll make sure you get one of these mugs with the retail perch on it. Oh, awesome. And, uh, you get to be a guest on the next season of the retail perch, but only if you bring the mug along. So, Oh, that's an easy deal. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed even thinking through the answers that I was providing to some of your questions, seeing your thoughts on some of those same ideas. Um, I would love to be back. And um, if you send me the mug, I, I will come. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. Karik, you ever notice how much of our interaction somehow revolves around caffeine? Yes. As, a, as, a, as an aside, uh, for Gary uh, once as a thank you for coming to class so often, I bought him, I think, a six-month or a one-year copy subscription. And I just know that's the one thing I need to, to provide him when he comes to campus. Oh, just no. make sure there's some kind of coffee with an access and he's good to go. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, Karthik, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. And I can't wait for this episode to come out and our listeners to hear. And, you know, again, folks, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for supporting the Retail Perch again. And I want to thank Stephanie for putting all this together and keep the support up and keep those questions coming. We'll love it. And we've got a great lineup of guests coming up for the next few weeks. Of course, you know, we're going to have Karthik back on here shortly, um, sure, with the coffee mug. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you guys out there. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off. 